Good morning, everyone. Thanks for that skit there. It reminds me of the early years of my marriage. Uh, um, or it was just last week of my marriage, so. <laughs> it's uh, good to be with you. Uh, if I happen to cough a little bit, uh, please excuse me. It is December, it is like 75 outside, and so my allergies are kind of wacky uh, this, uh, this weekend. So please excuse me for that. We are on our series, The Promise of Christmas, and the last couple of weeks we've been going over various um, nativity events, and we've applied them to the Advent themes. We've been looking at Zachariah and Joseph, Mary, and Elizabeth. Today, uh, we're going to take a slight detour from that. Instead of looking at the finer details or of a particular character of the nativity story or nativity event, we're going to look at the bigger picture, the bigger picture that God established in and through that nativity story. So today, our title is um, The Promise of Love. Let's see if I can get to our slides. There we go. Oh, we can go there. Okay. The passage I'm going to use this morning is a very familiar passage to, uh, to all of us or to most of us, and it's John 3.16. Um, just a, a little note before we get started. Your outline in the program is going to be slightly off. I had submitted it early, and then the Holy Spirit said, no, don't use that, and so uh, changed it slightly. So all the uh, outline uh, numbers will be on the screen, and you can follow along. I wouldn't suggest that you cross them all out right now. Uh, some of them uh, may still be used. Nonetheless, so we're going to use John 3.16 as the passage for this morning, or just kind of a point we're going to uh, place our flag and come back uh, every so often. Just a little bit of context about this particular passage. Again, it's John 3.16. Jesus, at this point, is an adult. He's in ministry, and he's speaking to this religious leader, Nicodemus. Okay? And so that's kind of where we are. Before we go uh, further, let me go ahead and pray. Lord, we continue to worship and adore you, even through the preaching of your word. As we hear it, we ask, Lord, that it doesn't come back void, but rather that you would bear fruit through it. Lord, I ask that through the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John 3.16 goes like this, for God loved the world in this way. He gave uh, his, only, his one and only son so that whoever, I'm sorry, who, anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So this morning I'm just going to be straightforward. I'm going to give you a kind of three truths about Christ's birth. And kind of strap in a little bit because there's a lot of content. I was looking through these things, and God has just kind of provided me so much truth and uh, material from his word. It was hard to just kind of take it all out. But I think as we process it all, you'll be able to see what God is saying to us. So this morning, it's truth about God's birth. First one, that 
For God loved the world. This is going to be a starting point for us. We're going to just look at this verse and take it in different parts. For God loved the world. Despite the impression that we may have that Christ's arrival at his birth was this one time in which God's love was evident and it started from there, that is really not the case. God has always loved us. He has always loved us since the beginning since his eternity. God has always been a constant, and for those who are math fans, you know what a constant is. It is a, it is a fixed number. It doesn't change, all the, though all the other variables may change. So through the ages, God has been stating and restating and expressing his love. It started with creation, and he's loved since creation. God being whole and complete totally fine with how he is, yet out of love, he created man. His intention was for man to fully experience the glory of God himself. A a verse we've used uh, more recently in our Hebrew study from um, Psalms 8.5. You made him, man, little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Imagine that. When he's created man, his intention was to crown him with glory and honor. Just as glorious as God himself is. Just as honorable as God himself is. That was his intention for us. God created us in his image. And he had fellowship with man in the garden. And there was this intimacy that they, that, that they had together. And so that was his intention. That he would love man intimately, wonderfully, deeply, and give them, give us honor and glory. So it started at the very beginning of creation that God had expressed his love. But then we also see it in history too, that he has shown love to his people, the Jews and the Israels who he called and he adopted as his people. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Deuteronomy 7, 9. The Lord has set, the Lord has set on you and chose, I'm sorry, the Lord has set his heart on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. I think it's just so deep and so wonderful and so powerful that God would call Israel, the Jews, my people, my people. Not those people or not those are my creations, but he would call them with his affection and say, these are my people. And even though the, G- the Jews were slaves in Egypt, even though they were aliens in the land, even though they had nothing to offer in exchange for what God was doing for them, he would set his heart upon them. Talk about grace. Talk about grace. That they were the smallest of all these people. That they had nothing to offer, yet God would take them in and call them my people. That is grace. But we know that love is just not fluffy words. It is love. Love is carried out in action. So God journeyed with them. God provided for them. He strengthened and disciplined them. He was a shield around them. He was defender and he fought for them. So he took 
action to express his love. Just wasn't in words, but he provided, he cared for his people. And thirdly, God expressed his love in Jesus. The ultimate expression of love. Matthew 1.23 says this, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. With Christ coming to earth, God took this dynamic form. With God in the flesh, it only takes us back to the garden of Eden. When God had this fellowship with Adam and Eve, same thing here. God would take this form of man and be in the flesh and be amongst the people. So he had this personal relationship with people just as he did way back in the Adam, with Adam and Eve. In any relationship, there's a difference between absent and present despite the best intentions. Long ago, like the 1980s, the late 1980s, um, I had gone away on this six-week uh, academic learning thing in Taiwan. Some of you are old enough like me will know it's called the Love Boat. And so um, it was supposed to be a cultural enrichment thing, but for six weeks in Taiwan. So it's called Love Boat for many bad reasons. That's why. Uh, but six weeks, six long weeks. And at that time, before the internet was around, um, I was courting Doris. And the only way that we could correspond was through letter writing. Back then, that was a thing, letter writing. You put a stamp on it, you send it to the mail, and it would take some time to get there. So we would correspond to each other, and we would have the stuff like, oh, what did I do today? What did I eat? How was this trip? And she would tell me what's going on back here uh, at home. And of course, in those letters, there would be expressions of affection and of love and how I missed her, so on and so forth there. So for six long weeks, writing back and forth, eager to get this, this letter. And even though I, I, I knew uh, how she felt about me and, and through the letter writing, and I hoped that she knew how I felt about her in this letter writing, it just wasn't the same about being together, right? So after six long weeks are over, I get to come home. I see her and I run up to her and I go give her a handshake because, you know, Bible distance and all that. No, you know, give her a big hug, tell her that I love her, and then we would go out. We'd hold hands and we would be able to share those affections and those words in person. I think you may understand what I'm talking about. When I think about the Old Testament, it's almost the same thing. That God is writing this love letter to his people. And he's sending it through his leaders as well as through these prophets. And he's telling them, I, I love you. And, and, and I want you to be faithful. And I'm going to bless you. And he's transmitting it there. But it's not until Jesus comes that he's there with them. That it is this embrace with his people. Right, when, he, when Jesus ministered to people, he didn't keep this distance with them and says, okay, here's your bread and let me just throw it to you or let me just kind of heal you, you know, everyone just very distant afar. But I can imagine a Jesus coming up to people, putting his hand on them, putting it on his, their head. I'm praying for you. I want you to be healed. Tell me what's going on. Let me tell you that I love you. That's the Jesus I know. And so this is what happens with, with Jesus. It's the ultimate expression of God's love. 
coming in the flesh, being amongst us. The absence is gone. And so that is God's expression of love, the ultimate expression that when Jesus comes, he's amongst the people. But God's love doesn't stop just when, just through Jesus' arrival. We see God's expression of love in Christ's death on the cross. We see it in that he provides us with a counselor, the Holy Spirit. We will experience it when our souls were with God and even beyond that, when at some point, at some time, we're gonna be glorified with God. And that's all because of God's love. And he desires that we be, have glory and honor to experience his love, to know, to, ha- to, have, to be elevated as his people, as his children. That is love. But we have to ask why does God do all this? Why does God have this love? Because God is love. That is his very nature. And he writes this in Jeremiah 31. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. Unlike human love, God does not waver. God does not change over time. He does not weaken in his intensity. He doesn't come and go. But as it says here, that God has this everlasting love for us. Therefore, I will continue to extend faithful love to you. What's the application for us? Simply this, that God's love is for you and it's for me. For some of us, because we've lived amongst failed and broken people, imperfect people, we have a hard time understanding what love is. Or perhaps we've never felt love personally. Some of us have never heard it from our parents or from our friends, or we've never seen it in our families. Others, not only is the love absent, but perhaps there may be some type of abuse or there may be some ill treatment going on. I want to tell you that God has always loved you. God has always loved you. And unlike any human love that comes and goes, that's flawed, his love is perfect, it is never failing, and it is endless. Not only will you get plenty of it, but it will last forever. And it's available to you. It's available to me. So whether you are low in standing or high in position, whether you have it all together or you're missing some parts, popular or unpopular, God's love is for you. Second truth I just want to share with us is is from, he gave his one and only son, and that is God fulfilled his promise of Christ. So if you're looking at your outline, that's the one line that still, uh, <laughs> still works. <laughs> Throughout the Advent season, you've heard us refer to Christ as the Messiah. And Messiah means the promised one or the deliverer. Luke 2, 11 says, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born, uh, was born for you, who is the Messiah or Christ the Lord. Now there are two ways to understand the Messiah. The first way is from the Jewish way, and the second way is God's way. If you look at the screen there, since Abraham, there's been hints of a great Messiah or king to the Jewish people. 
And the closest the Jews came to a great earthly king was King David. But after David, all the kings raged from awful to so-so. So there was a great hope and a waiting for a great Messiah, earthly king to save them from bad kings and their enemies and to establish a kingdom or country of their own. The second way is God's plan. So after an Eve sinned, God immediately put into place a way to redeem and restore humanity. God, using all sorts of people, using all different types of tracks, was orchestrating the Savior's arrival. Imagine a picture that is gradually coming into, into focus, coming into fullness, and at the right time, Jesus' birth, we see it completely. The Jewish way was to imagine someone great and awesome to come and to save them. But God's way was really a very different way. Whoops. The Jewish way is still waiting. Whereas God's way, the Savior, the Messiah, has come. You know, as the Old Testament was taking place through time, the one person to redeem and restore was coming into fullness. The one person who was the Messiah, the Christ, was coming into the picture. So the fullness of Christ, the promise of Christ was fulfilled by God. Secondly, God gave his word. He gave his word that Messiah would come. You don't need to track all these passages I have, but Genesis 49.10, you may have a hard time even reading them. It says this, as Jacob was saying to his son uh, Judah as a pledge, a scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he uh, who's not, who's right it is comes and the obedience of the people belongs to him. Isaiah 11, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Jeremiah 33, 14, 15, look. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will fulfill the good promise that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout up from David and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. And we see here in Matthew 1, the genealogy. God gave his word to Abraham it hit to Judah, it went down to Jesse, it hit David the king, all the way down. And eventually Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. God gave his word, and God kept his word. Luke 2, today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. He gave his word thousands of years ago, and he kept it. And he fulfilled it. And not only that, but God delivered at the right time. We may think it took God forever. Look at all these times. Thousands of years have passed. But that's not the case. His timing was designed. Ephesians 1 says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he proposed in Christ as a plan for the right time, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. 
He ordained the circumstances and time in our lives when some of us accepted Christ into our lives. He brought the right people into our lives so they may counsel us and speak truth into our lives so that we may know Christ. His time is perfect. So his timing may be perfect for you today. If you don't know Jesus, maybe God is speaking to you today that you need to know and you need to receive this Messiah. And thirdly, God deliver who we needed. God delivered who we needed. For this issue of sin, God knew that no human could completely redeem and rescue us from sin. God had to do it. He gave his one and only son. And I want to just speak for a moment about this word son. And actually means more than we understand. I think when we hear about son, we think about the father, and then there's an offspring, there is a son. And yet they have some similarities, maybe through genetics, maybe, you know, similar uh, eyes or hair or something like that. They're not identical, and they're not totally matched. But that's not the case with Jesus the son and to God the father. They really are more like twins, Whereas there may be differences in humans with God and with uh, God the Father and Jesus' Son, that's not the case. Hebrews 1.3, and Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. The exact represent, representation of his nature. So again, God knew the gravity of sin, the depth of sin, the power of sin, and he knew that no one on earth would be able to solve that issue. So he came himself as a son to do it. So he was himself the deliverer and is Jesus, the son whom we need. The gospel repeatedly uh, states how the Father and the Son are one. So God, as an ultimate form of love, called upon himself as Jesus the Son to save us from sin. He did this personal. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send some substitute to care for souls. He came himself at the designated time to offer himself as the solution. So what's the application for us? That you can receive this promise. I know and I recognize that and I believe that, you know, some of us, if not all of us, have real life challenges. Perhaps there's some confusion in our lives. Perhaps there's some insecurities that we have. I want to invite you to consider and to allow God to bring peace and clarity into your life. His intention has always been to love you. His intention was always to give you Jesus. It may be right now, or it may be in this Advent season. But I hope that you will consider receiving this promise of God himself through Jesus Christ. The third truth comes from this last portion of John 3:16. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
Earlier I was talking about uh, the Jews' understanding of the Messiah. It would be this earthly king who would establish his own country. He'd rule with a good government. He would defend all enemies, uh, foreign and domestic. He would defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. He would look like King Saul. He would rule like King David. And he would make Israel as rich as King Solomon. He would make Israel great again. So, but this is what all the Jews believed. And this is the image that they had of their Messiah. So you can understand the confusion, the doubt, the blasphemy when Jesus says that he is the Son of God and the Father and he are one. How can this not very attractive, not very strong, not coming from a great lineage, there, nobody parents, Joseph and Mary, carpenter, coming from a place born in a manger, in a stable, in nowhere Nazareth. That is not where great people come from. That is not where saviors and messiahs come from. So you can understand when Jesus is talking and ministering to, to people that they're looking at him and they're saying, this can't be. This is not the person who is the Messiah. It does not equate with them. Now enter Nicodemus. I mentioned at the very beginning that, John, that Jesus is speaking with him uh, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee official, kind of a Jew of Jews. And there's two things he knows for sure. That the Jews followed the law, the Jewish law, this high stand for living. And secondly, the earthly Messiah will come. Those are the two things that the Jews knew for sure. The law is like 1,400, 1,400 plus laws that every good Jew had to comply with in order to be right with God. They had to do them correctly all the time, lest they be unclean. And about the Messiah, for Nicodemus and the Jews, they put this tr their trust into this human Savior and Messiah. But Jesus sets Nicodemus straight. Oops. Oops, oops. He sets them straight. It is saved by who you believe in, not in what. That we're saved by who you believe in, not in what. Salvation is who you believe, not in what you believe. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, Nicodemus can't understand that. When Jesus tells him that he is the Messiah, Again, that doesn't compute. See, the problem that the Jews had was that they saw, they, they saw their salvation in effort and by human solution. For them, life and death were limited to what they were accomplishing day by day, making sure they did things correctly, and hoping that someday this Messiah would come and kind of transform their land and put them into a better earthly situation. They couldn't understand that the nature of their problem was spiritual, and it required God himself to solve it. We could also be blind and see only life in the day-to-day -day and not the spiritual. Some of you may be familiar with this picture. 
what do you see? Some of you may see a young lady, the back of a young lady. Some of you may see the profile of an older lady. What do you see? See, for Nicodemus, they can only stand, understand God in one image, unable to see the other. So they saw that they must do what they're supposed to do, and they're supposed to wait for this Messiah. They couldn't see Jesus as God and also their solution. For us, we may have the same issue before us. Who do you see? You can simply see this couple, no cup, this nobody couple, ordinary couple, this ordinary baby, or you can see God in the flesh. In the same way, you can see a man hanging on the cross, guilty of some crime, receiving some punishment, or you can see God taking on our sin and our punishment. What do you see? If you think you can earn your way to heaven and salvation, then you can dismiss Jesus because you really don't need him. He's nobody. He's no one of significance because you're going to do it yourself. But if you know that you need the help of God in your life and for salvation, then you can see Jesus as a Messiah and the Savior. The last point is saved by faith. If we take, um, we can take John chapter 3 for granted. We all know John 3.16. I put it on the screen. Some of you can uh, recite it by memory. But I think we hardly know the rest. When we read the rest of the text, it gives a complete and real message about our relationship with God and salvation in Jesus Christ. It's simply this. We are all dead already because of sin. Sin has caused us to be separated from God and without God and without God, we are all dead. Only Jesus can save. I had this initial analogy to share about this verse here, but it wasn't correct. I originally had imagined that I was floating out in a sea of water, distant from any kind of civilization, distant from any boats, and I'm just floating and I'm treading there for days. And I have this sense that I'm going to die. Then Jesus comes and he's on this boat and he comes and rescues me. That's not really accurate. In fact, that's wrong. It fails in this very point that I think I'm still alive. When we actually read John 3.18, it says this. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Again, we always think, you know, we're kind of the, the, the good guy in our story and I'm floating there and someone will come and rescue me. But as the truth that God says here, that's not the case. Jesus is telling us this, we're all lost at sea, but we're all drowned and we're dead already because of sin. We are spiritually dead, spiritually lifeless. So Jesus walks out onto the water because he doesn't take boats, pulls us out, gives us chest compressions, breathes life into us, and brings us out of death. And that is how we should read this passage. And that's how we should understand reality. That we are already dead unless Jesus comes to intervene and gives us life. Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to live, you want to, if you want to avoid spiritual death, 
then you have to do the most crazy thing. It doesn't make much sense. It doesn't require any physical effort. You don't need to have any special tools, medication, or ritual. He says to Nicodemus, all you have to do is look to me and believe who I am. All the Jews needed to do was to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the true Messiah, and believing in him would give them everlasting life, everlasting, satisfying spiritual life. The simplicity of this is absurd. It is crazy. But in reality, it's tremendously hard to make this decision. Putting our faith, simply believing in God, in Jesus. A decision like this challenges our pride. It challenges our sense of accomplishment. A decision, a decision like this forces us to, to admit that we can't do it on our own and we need help. If such a decision like this was easy, then plenty of people would be believers and followers of Jesus, right? But it's not. It's not an easy decision. For a relationship with God, for spiritual salvation from, spirit, from eternal death, is not by anything we do, is not by any human means that will accomplish this, but is believing in Jesus Christ and putting our trust in him. If we choose to look to Jesus, we can have life from death. So the promise of love is for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. What's the application? Simply this, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. to put our faith in Jesus Christ. God's promise of love is for you. You can receive this promise. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ. So the last question to ask is, will you believe? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the power that comes in your word. We thank you for your promise of love and all the power and all the truth that comes from your love. We thank you that you have given us Jesus who came in the flesh. You represent it perfectly as an expression of your love because you don't want any of us to remain in our deadness and in our lifelessness, but rather you want everyone to come to be saved and to know Jesus Christ. So I pray and ask that you will speak to all of our hearts. For some of us, we've been coming to church for a long time, and we kind of take the story and the realities of these things for granted. But I ask, Lord, that you would pierce our hearts with the simplest of truth, that Jesus is available for us, and all we have to do is believe in who he is and receive him. Lord, there may be some in this room here that have, that have never heard of Jesus. I ask, Lord, that they would pursue this promise and you would speak truth into their lives. 
For some of us, we're kind of on the fence about whether to believe or not. We're just like Nicodemus. You know, I see the reality of things. I know what I know, and I know what I want, but it doesn't measure up to what you're asking of me. Lord, will you challenge us to see the spiritual reality rather than just the earthly things around us and to see that eternity is at stake and we would make those bold steps to know you more. Church, I just want to speak to you that if you're at this point where you know you need Jesus as your Messiah, you know that life is difficult and you need help. You know that there's confusion, there are just no answers and you don't know how you're going to get past your situations, that, Lord, that you would consider Jesus Christ.